He created the stars. He created the mountains. He created the seas. And he, the creator of the universe, created me. I am his. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, stop. <laughs> yeah, that was completely unprovoked, and I appreciate it, especially you online campus. That was so loud. Thank you for your applause. Uh, as Pastor Ryan said, my name is Dustin Johnston with a T, and uh, my wife is Kara, and we've been here for just a few months now, and we're we're so glad to be here. People told us to be afraid of the weather moving up here, but it's been nothing but pleasant, so I don't think it's ever going to get bad. Uh, I don't think we'll ever have anything to complain about, so um, hopefully that, that doesn't change. Uh, today, we are continuing our I Am His series as we journey through the book of Ephesians, so you can just turn to that general location now. Uh, we'll be there shortly shortly, uh, we're, we're trying to discover in the series who we are in Christ. And so I, I want us to start this way, okay? Would you trust me enough just at the start of the sermon to repeat after me? Let, let's, let's do this. Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Help me to be the person you've called me to be. I believe that you sent your son to live a perfect life and to die on the cross in my place. I believe that he rose again and is now in heaven preparing a place for me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, and everybody says... Amen, amen. Well, almost every single one of you have prayed a prayer like that before. That wasn't the first time that you said that. Or if that was the first time that you said that, then congratulations, you're now saved. So great job. Uh, we started service strong. Uh, but the majority of us, that wasn't the first time that we prayed that. At some point in our life, either a pastor or a priest, maybe even a youth pastor led us in that prayer. Or we just, in our, in our own mind and in our own heart, we, we submitted a prayer like that to the Lord. And in that moment, we celebrated and we rejoiced over the fact that we were saved. And so I am, you are, we are saved. And we love that word. And in the Christian church, we use it regularly to describe our state of being after accepting what Jesus has done on our behalf. But do we really know what it means? Like, sure, we know, we, we understand the word and, and what saved means and just on its own, but when we apply it to the Christian faith and now to our souls after we have accepted Christ as our Savior, do we know what it means to truly be saved. Imagine a co-worker or a friend, a family member comes up to you and says, are you saved? You would definitely know how to respond to that, right? I mean, you would say, yeah, absolutely I'm saved. But if they were to go one step further and say, well, could you explain to me exactly what that means? 
<laughs> like it gets awkward really fast and you don't know where you would go or what you would say. You probably haven't had to have that conversation much. Many of us have this gift that we call salvation, yet sometimes we speak so flippantly of it and and we have little understanding of of what it fully means. But Paul is going to show us today in Ephesians chapter 2 what salvation truly does mean. And the Apostle Paul is going to answer three questions for us pertaining to salvation and why it is such an amazing and why it is such an inexplicable gift. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. If you do not have your Bibles and you do not have an app, uh, the words will be on the screen behind me. Do follow along though. Uh, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which that's Satan, (laughs) the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time. We all lived among these disobedient unbelievers. We gratified the cravings of our flesh and followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So let's just stop there. The the, the first thing that Paul does here is show us what we were saved from. So, So saved from what? What were we saved from? So if, if I were to walk up to you, you know, barely having met the majority of you, and I were to say, can you believe that she did that? You would have no idea what I was talking about, right? Like you would be thoroughly confused because you have no framework with which to answer that kind of question. If I were to randomly say to you, I agree, that is the ugliest thing that I've ever seen, you would be like, who are you talking about? What are you, are you talking about? Like, what is it? Because there, with no context, you have no answer. Likewise, if you were to ask some people, if, if they were saved, they would have no idea how to answer that question. Because they never knew they were in any kind of danger to begin with. Saved from what? What are you talking about? Like, what, what kind of danger am I in that I need saving from? It, that, that, that makes no sense. It, here, here's the reality. The reality is that if you don't have a sense that you're in danger, you have no real urgency for a savior. If you don't know when you're in danger, you don't need anything, you, at least you, you don't think you need anything worth saving from. But look at the words that Paul uses here in Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses that we've read to describe what kind of danger we are truly in. Uh, Look there, he said, uh, there's words like dead, transgressions, sins. He talks about our past life, the way that we used to live, the ways of this world, the ruler of the air, which that in and of itself sounds pretty ominous. We've got words like disobedient, flesh, wrath. In just three verses, Paul lists a number of some very serious things that you and I were saved from. And, And the truth is, that every single person that has not placed their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior will have these things as a part of their life, but also as a part of their eternity if they do not accept Christ as Lord. And that's intense. 
like nobody likes to hear that. That, that doesn't necessarily even preach well because that, that makes people uncomfortable to hear that reality. But it's true. People will get offended if you walk up to them and tell them that they are a sinner on their way to hell. And reasonably so. That's pretty offensive. That, that, that's not a nice thing to just start a conversation with. But that is a real thing. It's a true thing. And it's a very biblical thing. I'm not just making it up. We did just read it in the Bible after all. Picture it this way with me if you would. Okay, so the majority of people are, are in, in this world are floating down this, this river. And, and yeah, it's, it's a strong current. It's not too strong. It's, it's not overwhelming. It's a nice current. It's a beautiful day outside. It's very sun, sunny. Uh, the, the majority of the people are in the water, but they're afloat because they're in nice little floaties with, uh, with pink flowers and ripe bananas decorated on the sides. They've got a, a drink in one hand and they're talking with their friends. There's not a, a single care in the world. You are standing on the side of that river, and you've got a different perspective. You've got a different vantage point, so you can see about a half mile down the way where, where the water drops off. And, and you can't tell when you're in the water, but standing on the side, you can tell that there's a waterfall that's a half mile ahead, and, and surely at the bottom of that waterfall are jagged rocks that will consume the very lives of the people that are enjoying their day in the water right now. And unless someone tells them, hey, there's danger ahead, you've got to get out or you've got to turn around and start swimming the opposite direction. Unless someone tells them, then they will uh, certainly meet their demise because they cannot see what's on their horizon. This is kind of what it's like in our, in our world today. And so it, it, it's not rude to tell people of this danger, of this impending danger. It's rude not to tell people. Now please understand me, there is a way to do it. You, you don't just walk up to someone at the grocery store, tap them on the shoulder and, and say, excuse me ma'am, do you know where the milk is? Also, you're going to hell. <laughs> that, that tactic has never been a good one. It's never worked. It's never changed anyone. A lot of us, when we talk about evangelism and sharing our faith, think it's got to be like that or think it's got to be weird, like, uh, like someone that's standing on the side of the road with a cardboard sign that says, turn or burn. There's other ways, there's other ways to share your faith. You don't have to be some weird, crazy person. You can, you can be normal, you can be sane, and you can still share your faith so that, so that other people can hear about Jesus. Here's the thing. It doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be crazy, but you've got to do something. We cannot afford to have received the, the salvation that God has so freely given us only to hoard it for ourselves and be unwilling to share it with anybody else. Like, what is that? That we would receive something so precious and yet refuse to share it with others because of embarrassment, shame, humiliation. None of those are good enough reasons. You and I, we were saved from so many things, from spiritual death. We are saved from physical death. Do you understand that as a Christian, physical death is no defeat for us? That as a Christian, we still get victory even in physical death. 
That's a beautiful thing. You and I were saved from sin. We are saved from Satan and his grasp. You and I were saved from the wrath of God. Paul gives us a a series of things that we were saved from, of terrible consequences. But how did this happen? What was it that allowed us to escape these, these terrible things? Paul answers that. He gives us, uh, uh, he answers a second question here. What were we saved by? Uh, we are saved by, by what? What were we saved by? And, and there are really just one of two options that most people subscribe to when it comes to salvation. Okay? So track with me. Option number one is works. Option number one is works. Most, if not all, religions apart from Christianity teach that this is the way that that you are saved. So if you do certain things and you refuse to do other things, then you for yourself can achieve salvation. Okay, so in Buddhism, denying worldly pleasures grants you salvation. In Hinduism, detaching yourself from this world and living in in unity with the divine saves you. In Islam, living a holy life full of good deeds saves you. Even in Judaism, repentance, prayer, uh, and obeying the law, that is what saves you. Even a lot of Christians tend to buy into this ideology that, that doing good deeds saves you, kind of like our life is set on a scale, that your eternity is on a balance. And if you do more good things than bad things, then you are indeed saved. If you do more bad things than good things, then you are definitely not saved. You have backslided, you have lost your salvation. And so if you, if you uh, feed the dog, walk the old lady across the street, and you give to uh, the poor, then you are probably saved. If you, uh, conversely, if you lie, cheat, and still, and forget to feed the dog, then you are, are, are no longer saved. The scales tip. I mean, a lot of people live that way, and it sounds right. There's something about that that seems true. The only problem with that is the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. And so the, the, the first option that we have to, to understand of how we were saved or what we were saved by is works. The second option, Christianity's choice, is that you and I were saved by grace. You've heard the word before. Grace. So, so the story of the Bible and our history is that there is a death sentence that is hanging over all of humanity. And it's one that we cannot escape, and it's one that we cannot appease on our own. And God, from heaven, came into this world in the form of a man. And and that man lived a perfect life, free of sin. And he died on a cross in our place for our sins. And then, though, he decided, you know what, that's not enough. I'm going to raise from the dead, and Jesus did. And he defeated death and hell and sin once and for all when he resurrected victorious. And he conquered sin and death so that we could have victory through him and be saved by him. That, that's the narrative. That is what we consider and call the gospel. 
Okay, so, so that is what has happened. So I guess you could still say that we were saved by works, just not our works. You understand? Because our works are puny, our works are weak, our works are fragile, our works cannot save us. We are saved by Jesus' works. And ultimately, we were saved by Jesus' work, and that work is grace. Okay, so this is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Okay, so what was our state of being? We were dead. We were dead. How much good can a dead person do? Huh? What's their best work? Being dead. They can't accomplish anything. And so we were dead in our transgressions prior to Christ. And so we see here, continue reading, it is by grace you have been saved. If you look in verse 8, Paul continues the thought. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Okay, so you should not be confused here. Paul lays it out very clearly. It is not by works that you have been saved. Dead people do no good works. You and I were dead. It was only by the free gift of God called grace that we are now alive in Christ. Let me break this down for you. It was not a prayer that you prayed that saved you. Why? Because that's works. It was not you lifting up a hand, responding to a, a preacher or a priest that saved you. That would be good works. It was not you standing up out of your chair to come down to the altar and receive prayer that saved you because that was work. It's, it's work, okay? So before you raised your hands, before you repeated the prayer, before you got out of your seat and came forward, God had already begun a work in your hearts. And it was the Holy Spirit that gave you the boldness in the first place to lift up your hands. It was the Holy Spirit that gave you the courage to get out of your seat and walk down to the front of the room. It was God who moved first. You've got to understand this. It was nothing that you did. It was everything that he did. And that's good news. It was after God sent his son. It was after he lived a perfect life. It was after he died a terrible death. It was after he rose again. It was after he pursued you while your identity was still sinner and your, and your character was still dead. It was after he provided you the grace to even accept him. Then and only then do you have a role to play. And that role is simply saying, Okay, like that's your task in this whole thing. God does everything and you say, okay, I accept. Like that's all you do. That's why it's called grace, that amazing grace. That's why it's so beautiful. It's, grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. It's nothing that you and I did to deserve it. It's everything that God did. And he so freely gave it to you as a gift, something you and I do not deserve. There is no good work, no amount of good works that it could accomplish salvation for us. The Bible says that your good works are filthy rags but God provided the greatest work in his son, Jesus Christ, and he, through his life, death, and resurrection, provided us grace that has saved us, and that is a good, good thing. 
So you and I, we were saved. We were saved from sin, death, and darkness. You and I were saved not by works, but by the amazing grace of God. It was nothing that you've done, everything that God has done, but what now? I mean, you've still got 40, 50, 60 years left of your life. What are you to do now with the grace that you have? What are you to do now with the salvation that you have? You're saved, so what does that mean for the future? Paul answers that in a third and final question that we have. What were we saved for? What were we saved for? Saved for, saved for what? Verse 6 in Ephesians 2 reveals this to us. And God raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Like, if the story doesn't get, enough, get good enough, people, not only did God graciously save us, but there is a space reserved for you in heaven right next to Jesus. Like, that's mind-blowing. Verse 7. He did this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So there is one reason and one reason only that God doesn't just save you and immediately transport you to heaven. Some of us wish on bad days that that is what God would have done. But God didn't decide to do it that way and that you're left here for one purpose. And it is to use every waking moment of every day to see him more clearly. To, to learn about him more, to grow closer and closer to him, to find him greater and greater with each and every passing moment. We are saved so that we could see and partake in the incomparable riches of his grace. So, so breaking this down, I know that's a lot of like thick and, and robust dialogue there and it's, it, it can get, we can get lost very quickly. Some of you might have even tuned me out just then. You're like incomparable riches of his grace, what? Well, let me just break that down just a little bit because it, it gets very simple when you just look at what that means. For us, that means that we come to Life Church on a regular basis so that we could sit under the preaching and teaching of Pastor Aaron. Like through that, the word is revealed and awakened within our hearts so that we can see Jesus more clearly. It means that this summer you get involved in a life group. Like that's one of the smallest and simplest tasks that you can do so that you can find yourself in the midst of other like-minded believers and you can sharpen one another and you can encourage one another in the faith that you both proclaim. That means you don't wait to come every weekend to open up this book, but that at home you find yourself on a Tuesday night opening this book and finding out what God has to teach you from his word. It means that you in your own time, you spend time praying and fasting. When's the last time that you've gone without food so that you could grow closer to the Lord? It's a biblical concept. And it's something that you can do to see him more clearly, to, to, to see his incomparable riches of his grace. That's, that's how you can see his nature and become more and more like him. And, and last but not least, that means that you share your faith with others. 
That's one of the greatest and easiest things, easiest, like you never see that with evangelism because it's a difficult process, but that's one of the things that you can do to, to, to slingshot your faith and, and your experience with God to a whole nother level. And a lot of us are missing out on what God has to offer us because we stopped short. We read our Bibles, we pray, we even fast at times. We're super spiritual. But when it comes to sharing our faith with others, it's where it gets difficult. These are just some of the ways that we can begin to see and witness the incomparable riches of his grace. And we can spend our entire lives trying to discover fully who God is and never reach a conclusion. But the pursuit is what it's all about. So watch how Paul concludes here in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared us in advance to do. So we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. It wasn't good works that brought us salvation, but now that we have salvation, it is good works that we must do. Let me explain kind of what this does and, and does not mean. This does not mean that your life, okay, so your life has to be one of all good works. This does not mean that you now have to sell everything you have and by the end of the week be in Africa on the missions field, uh, evangelizing every lost orphan child there. It does not mean that next week you have to be up on this platform behind this podium preaching to thousands of people. For a lot of you, that would cause a heart attack immediately, right? That, that does not mean that you have, to, you have to turn every conversation into a spiritual one. So someone's just talking to you about, hey, the, isn't the weather so nice outside today? Yeah, it's a little warm, but not even close to how hot hell is going to be. <laughs> like... And not every conversation has to go that way. That's not what it means to always be doing good works. Always be doing good works. This is what it does mean. Please catch this. If you are a believer and are saved by the grace of God, that every work you do for his glory is a good work. That every single thing you do as a Christian, with God in mind, not selfishly, but selflessly for God and for others, every work you do is a good work. So let me give you an example for this. And I see no better example than Jesus himself. So it was age 30 when he stepped out on the scene and began preaching, teaching, and doing miracles that we read about in the Bible. But what did he do before that? I mean, 29 years is a long time to live and have nothing uh, worth talking about. And, and I think there was plenty worth talking about. But if we were to read, and, and if, if everything was to be written down about those 29 years of life, so we'd have much more than just a single Bible, but volumes and volumes and volumes of work. Jesus, before he stepped out on the scene, I believe for the 29 years in his life, was doing good works. So as a kid, he obeyed his parents. 
Amen, parents, right? <laughs> as a kid, uh, he, he did his chores. <laughs> as a kid, he went to school and he went to temple. And within those times, he learned to read and write and how to study scripture on his own. At some point along the way, he became a carpenter like his dad. And, and he, he worked with his hands and he carved out wood. And all of those things were good works. Every step of the way, he was doing good works. And then and only then, 29 years later, did he step out on the scene and he he continued to do good works. He preached and he healed and he gave sight to the blind and he raised people from the dead. Those were good works, but those weren't his first good works. Jesus had begun good works long before that. And he had set a precedent in his life of doing good works, of every step along the way, doing good works so that he could ultimately one day do his greatest work when he died on the cross for our sins. His whole life was one of good works and service to God, and yours can be too. So God isn't calling every single one of us to be pastors this morning. He isn't calling every one of us to be missionaries, but he is calling every single one of us to do good works. For some of us, that's going to be as a teacher. For some of us, as an accountant. Some of us, that will be as a doctor or even a lawyer. For some of us, that's going to be using the money that God has blessed you with to fund charities and to support missionaries. For some of you, that might look like adoption. Adoption is a good, good work. For some of us right now, that simply means going to school, making good grades, getting a good job. And those are good works. Look, every single work you do as a Christian is a good work. And that is why you were saved. And understand this, please. God doesn't need our works, but the world so desperately does. You have been saved. You have been pulled out of the water. You have been rescued when you could do nothing to save yourself. God plunged into the water and pulled you out. Can't you extend the same courtesy to others? It's important business, Life Church. In fact, it's the most important business that you could ever get yourself involved in. You were saved to make him known, to receive his grace, and to extend his grace to others. Now, some of you have come into this room this morning and you are are not yet saved. You have not yet responded to that free gift of God. You've heard this message and and, and you've been intrigued. If you were to be honest, something inside of you has kind of leapt at the thought or this idea of experiencing this kind of salvation that I've been talking about this morning. What's happening here is, if I could show you behind the scenes, the Holy Spirit is moving inside of you and changing your heart's position so that you could get to a place this morning where you would receive him. And remember, all that you have to do is say, okay. God's already done everything needed for you to be saved. All you have to do is say, okay. I believe, I I believe in Jesus. I receive the grace that God has to offer me. That is all that you have to do. Listen, the the enemy is trying to lie to you right now and say, hold on, you've got to go and get yourself fixed up and cleaned up before God can do something for you. That is the opposite of the truth. 
You have to do no other thing except right now say, okay, accept and receive. You don't have to go and clean yourself up. That is what God is for. God gives you his grace, grants you his free gift, and then he does the cleaning process. All you have to, you don't have to wait another day. You don't have to fix anything. All you have to do is come to the Lord right now in this moment. So we're going to give you the opportunity to do just that. Can we just all in this room bow our heads, close our eyes? We're just going to respect the privacy of others and what's going on in this sacred moment. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. There's not going to be a repeat after me because I believe that you can say the words that your heart is already speaking. But I'm just going to ask that everyone would pray, that believers would pray, that, that unbelievers would respond to the grace of God. And that if you came into this room today without a relationship with God, now is your opportunity. Do not miss this chance. You too can accept God's salvation tonight and, or this morning and leave here knowing that you are indeed saved. So I'm just going to give you a moment to pray and then I'll, I'll conclude here in prayer. So just everyone, would you just pray in this moment? God, I thank you for what you're doing in this moment. God, I believe that heaven is rejoicing because there are people here in this room and online even that are, that are responding to your grace. That for the first time in their lives, they're feeling this freedom, this overwhelming sense of, uh, of desire for, for God. That they are feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives and they're responding and they're receiving your grace and you are saving them. God, I thank you for grace. I thank you for Jesus and what he has done on our behalf and what he still does for us today. God, I thank you for salvation. Lord, I pray that you would save people this morning, and God, that those that are saved would begin living lives worthy of this gift. God, that we would begin living a life of works, good works unto God, that everything that we would do, every thought that we would think, every action that we would take would be for your glory, that people would be saved because of that. God, I just pray that many people because of the salvations in this room and because of the good works that come, that flow forth from Life Church, that, that people would be saved, that this community would be transformed, that heaven would be full. It's for your good name that we pray these things. Amen.